Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Frank. Frank, for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are, you want to introduce yourself to everybody. Hey, right on. Thanks a lot for having me, Robbie. My name is Frank Kim. I'm in uh, cybersecurity, and uh, there's kind of three areas that I focus on in security. I do a lot of security consulting and training and uh, startup advising and investing as well. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this for quite a number of years in terms of trying to help organizations uh, better protect themselves, better protect their assets, come up with a plan for what they need to do in terms of building out effective security programs. So yeah, that, that's it in a nutshell, Robbie. What's the biggest problem I would say when it comes to cybersecurity? Because I know a lot of people like are worried about like data protection, they're worried about privacy, they're worried about so much. And I would only think that with corporations, it probably has to be an even bigger problem too, just to make sure because in a sense, you are holding a lot of depending on what your corporation is, you're probably holding a lot of valuable assets when it comes to people's privacy and also comes to terms of like the secret formula could be a good example example. Yeah, exactly. Well, hey, you mentioned the secret formula. So, you know, that is one of the big challenges is identifying the crown jewels is what is most important uh, to that particular organization. I, I started my career as, a, as an engineer, as a developer, building applications, building systems. And to be honest, if I look back early in my career, I was really heads down focused, hands on keyboard, thinking about all of the technical things that we needed to do to build and secure our systems. But what you just mentioned about the, you know, the secret formula, those crown jewels is as I progressed in my career, I realized that, hey, I needed to take a step back and figure out what is most important to the organization. And a lot of it, sadly, is to this day still a lot of the what we might consider to be basic cyber hygiene, the equivalent of, you know, hey, get, uh, uh, cleaning up every day, brushing your teeth every day, flossing every day. Organizations still have a very hard time with that. Now, it might sound simple to brush and floss every single day, but why is it so hard? Well, it's because the, the business landscape is constantly changing. Those crown jewels, right, are kind of changing in terms of what the organization is trying to achieve. But also the technology landscape is changing with this move to cloud, for example, is security teams and engineering teams are still trying to figure out how to wrap our arms around all of that. And this shifting landscape makes it makes it tough. And so that's why I think we see this, this figuring out, well, how exactly do we need to brush and floss? What is the appropriate way to, to do that? It's It's been challenging over the years. Well, how do you do that with the cloud? Like, I don't even really know what the cloud is. I can say because it, it sounds cool. But like when I'm like talking to someone about like autonomous vehicles and say, well, it's all going to be with this new cloud software type thing. It's like, yeah, but what is that? Like, how do you, because I know every company gets like a basic template, I would say, but then they get to modify it on their own and make it kind of their own thing, but they still need to stick with like the basic rules and guidelines, I would say. But with tech increasing, everyone only hears the dangers about like your stuff's going to get taken from you or your data or all these new apps that are coming out that are monitoring you or putting tracking, whatever. But when it comes to our protection aspects to it, I'm very interested in the aspects of like, how do you protect something that could be on the cloud? I mean, even if you delete something off your computer and it's stored up on the cloud, is it just OneDrive technology with like Google saving something on a, a file that's going to be somewhere where you don't even realize that you have a picture from 2002 you thought you deleted or your MySpace account? Is it like that? It never goes away? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. You know, there's I will say with the cloud, there's a, there's an old part to it, and then there's a new part to it. The old part, if you will, is you know what is the cloud? It's just still a bunch of computers under the hood, but it's just a bunch of computers that other people, other organizations are helping you manage. So you, we, as the the buyer of the cloud, don't have to do it all ourselves. And we've seen that with you know Gmail and other services that that you mentioned as well. But what is the new aspect of this? What makes it a little bit more difficult is well, there's a, it's a slightly different way of working. It used to be that when you wanted to stand up a server, a system, a, a mail server, whatever it might be, well, hey, you as the administrator at a company would click next, 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 do a bunch of configuration and stand up that long running server. And it might be up and running for a long time. Well, now the part that's different about the cloud is not only is somebody else helping you manage it, but it is also, um, there's certain characteristics that they are now, systems are now ephemeral right? So that they may get stood up, they may get torn down at any point in time. And it's a little bit more dynamic. And the way that we interact with the cloud via APIs, via automated approaches, which we didn't necessarily have before, are definitely to the benefit of the security team because, hey, we're, we are now able to respond and work a little bit faster, more effectively. But the challenge in terms of that hygiene that we were talking about is that now we in security, we need to also understand these new ways of working and adopt these new engineering approaches. So that's why, you know, it's a little bit familiar, but it's a little bit different at the exact same time. What can you learn from a cloud? Like, cause the way that I'm kind of thinking about it is it's like, it's like a, it's like a digital copy of yourself. Cause I feel like, you know, at, at a time, a cl the cloud kind of would have been this thing. It's like, Oh no, it stores your favorite memories and videos. It's like, yeah, but when you upload something to a device, even if you're going to delete it off later, something that might not even be important. And, you know, my phone, for instance, it's hooked up on the cloud, but it's also got family sharing. It's got a bunch of stuff where my friend can see my texts at times. And I'm like, well, how do you, how do I disconnect that? And you start realizing it's like, it's making it like, for instance, how many episodes do I have? You could easily make a digital copy of me based on how many times I've had conversations and just the aspects of wherever those conversations go. So I start wondering, is the cloud like a digital copy of yourself? And then where can that, what, what can happen with that? Is it good? Is it bad? How do you manage that? Yeah, there's definitely a long lived aspect of that. You know, and we see this in movies and science fiction novels and so on is like eventually creating that digital copy of yourself. But I'll give you one basic example, just a, a few weeks ago, actually. You know, so I'm a user of lots of different cloud services. One of them, for example, being Dropbox. Dropbox makes it so easy and convenient to sync files up for backup, for storage. So now that I know if I've got certain documents, it's always going to be available. However, I do also have a corporate Dropbox for different customers and clients that I work with. And I had accidentally, because it's so easy to drag and drop those files, I accidentally copied over a, a, actually a very sensitive personal document that contained a lot of uh, proprietary information. And I accidentally synced it to the corporate folder. So I went and deleted it. Of course, I can delete it because I'm the one that put it there. However, Dropbox also maintains in perpetuity a copy of that. So you can go to the section that says these are your deleted files. So when I went to the deleted files, I couldn't actually 100% delete it because I'm not the owner, I'm not the administrator of that enterprise account. So I had to you know, jump through some a few hoops, eventually reach out, contact the right person that had administrative access and trust them to say, hey, I went in, that file you told me, I actually truly fully deleted it from Dropbox itself. So long story short, there are ways to do it, but it depends on the cloud service that you might actually be using. And first of all, of course, Hey, you as the user have to be aware that that's actually happening. So 
where do you think this like that? Where do you think the cloud would be, I guess, branched out to? Because I just see like with this technology right now, it's using, I guess it's being used for its base assets. Yeah, it's good to protect corporations and kind of businesses can profit off of it in a sense of using it for their corporation to protect their assets. But when does that excel into something else like social media? When does that excel into something else? It's because technology is becoming an ever part of our lives. I could talk to a bunch of people that'll scare the crap out of you where it's going. And then I'll talk to a bunch of people that go, oh, you know, living in a wasteland's fun. It's like, I don't know. But with the technology, people have to excel their knowledge in it and they have to know more about it. And hence me asking you questions based upon it. But when, like, where do you see this that it could be implemented or maybe where can you see this that it would be corrected towards where it would either scare you and then also where it would, you would have more appreciation of its understanding for working in cloud for so long? Yeah, so, you know, we've been talking about different types of clouds up to this point, right? So, you know, this might get a little bit specific here, right, just for a moment. So, you know, bear with me for a minute. You know, so, you, you know, we've been talking about uh, different like Dropbox, for example. That's something that we as users, consumers use all the time. That's what the category of cloud that we call kind of software as a service. So that might be Gmail, Dropbox, and, and so on. But then you've got another category of cloud that I kind of started the conversation with that's uh, more infrastructure and platform as a service. And those are the underlying more technical building blocks that companies will actually use. We as a regular person aren't necessarily going to, to use those clouds. So from a personal perspective, it's really that focus on, hey, what do we do every day? What websites do we interact with? You know, the cloud, if you will, by different names has been around for a long time because hey, we've been using websites, web applications for a long, long time, right? Kind of the web, the internet enabled what we're seeing kind of with the current generation of cloud. And to your point about, well, how do we get familiar with this? A lot of it really starts with you know, ed education. So I'm unfortunately in a situation where I am still the help desk for my parents. And the customer support requests from my parents went down quite a lot when I got them, got them off of the old Windows PC and got them an iPad and an iPhone. So my parents, my dad is aware that he can do some cool things like send uh, uh, messages to his friends and chat with them and so on. But there are still some things that he doesn't know how to do. I sent him an attachment. That's something I needed him to look at and review. And he didn't know how to actually tap on the PDF attachment to open it up in his email and download it. So seemingly simple thing for us, but he had to drive the 20 minutes to my house for me to show him how to do that, right? A simple thing, but he needed some training about um, you know, how to actually conduct those things. And it's the same thing with the cloud in terms of being aware of all of these different services that we've got available at our fingertips. Well, how manipulated is, or how can you manipulate the cloud? Like, I'm not asking for examples on like tricks to be able to do so. I'm just wondering what can happen to it. Because I mean, even like, for instance, kids that are growing up now, they're digitally native. They're used to the technology. They grow up in it. They learn a lot quicker than maybe some older people do. Like, for instance, you were talking about your parents. Um, your parents don't know certain ideas that come with it that to us would be common base. I'm just curious to if that technology can be manipulated in a certain way that could exceed our intelligence. It's also got to put a pressure on you just for cybersecurity reasons as well, too, because what could be basic knowledge to a kid is something where you're like, well, I didn't even think of that just because, I mean, it's kind of like, um, there's a, there's a saying it's like veterans. Uh, the reason why they look to a rookie is because a rookie can see an, a, an obstacle at all angles when a veteran knows the way that's worked before. And it's kind of like this routine thing. Yeah. Nice, nicely said. Yeah. That's uh, I'm going to have to steal that, uh, and use that analogy in the future. 
the uh, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And you know, fraud has been around for a long time. You know, before technology, there was mail fraud, and before that, there was other types of fraud. So it's really all about trust. How much trust do we have in these different services and people that we're actually interacting with? Now, you know, now some for some reason, I'm thinking about my parents and. You know, my mom was a victim of some very minor fraud. You know, she was getting those robocalls repeatedly over and over again. And as we know, a lot of times that, uh, you know, these uh, fraud will target uh, older people, right? And so she was, because, but probably because of what I had told her over the years, she would repeatedly kind of just tell them that she's not interested and hang up the phone and so on. After literally probably the 20th or 30th time calling, she kind of broke down and said, fine, go ahead and sign me up for this thing. And it was literally paying, I forgot what it was, $50 a month for, um, for them to pay their electricity bill, which isn't necessarily even that much, right? So it was a whole thing where my brother and I had to go back in and cancel the service and talk about how it was fraud. It was like a semi-legitimate, semi I guess, uh, thing. And you know, we hear the story all the time is now whatever, you, as we know, right, as you said, with your digital identity is there's these breadcrumbs, this trail of breadcrumbs that we're leaving behind us as we are interacting with various services, social media, and so on. And even with my kids, you know, I tell them, be careful about what you post online. We hear about how employers now are looking at uh, social media to see kind of what, what people do, what people engage in, and so on before they actually make a hiring decision. So yeah, this uh, and that stuff that's not necessarily so easy to delete, like that particular Dropbox file. So it's really all about not only kind of thinking about right where you kind of potentially expose yourself, but you know preventing, being careful how you use these various services, what you share with them, what you upload them to them as well. Frank, how do we take care of the breadcrumbs? Because you got to understand, like during this pandemic, I think was the clearest example is that now everyone has kind of been reliant on technology in an aspect because now it's involved into your job. When before you used to drive your job, now people are doing Zoom calls, people are doing all these types of things. This becomes a huge issue when you're worried about breadcrumbs. Like, how do I know if I'm leaving a trail? Now, I get it. Look, I only use this computer for podcasting. So if I'm going to search up something, most of the time it's on my phone. But I didn't know, like, for instance, I was getting Amazon recommendations off my Wi-Fi network that were stuff that like someone in my family that would be looking it up would like. So this was around December, Christmas time. I was like, okay, there's their stuff. I'm seeing it because the data feed from my phone, her phone, his phone, whoever is getting sent to the same Wi-Fi network. And it's showing me that in my Amazon cart, we don't have the same Amazon accounts, but I'm getting recommendations of her pop-ups or his pop-ups or whoever. And you land in this area of like, what are we doing online? Maybe not just even posting. You don't have to post. You don't have to do whatever. But now it's becoming a requirement, even broadcasting to your TV. I can broadcast to my TV downstairs when I'm trying to get the one in my room. Like there's so much now that's being involved with technology, being involved in networks and all this. It brings up this aspect of like, if you really want to live off the grid, how do you do that? Yeah, you know, hey, there's definitely benefits of technology, which is why we're all utilizing it. Uh, you know, not too long ago, some months ago, I got, had to get a new uh, washing machine because my old one that I had for a long time broke down. And of course, unbeknownst to me, this was a smart washing machine. <laughs> and uh, when I got it unboxed or that was delivered and installed, you know, there was a prompt to say, hey, could you connect this to your Wi-Fi network? Of course, exactly because what you said is I didn't connect it because I don't need that. There was no benefit. There was no extra functionality. I don't need to remotely start my, my washer. Right, and so yeah, I decided do. not to. Not, <laughs> I decided not to not to connect it, and uh, you know, to your point is, what do you well, what do you do about the breadcrumbs, right? And it's it's really a cost benefit 
in terms of, hey, well, what is it, what, how much work, how much effort does it actually take versus what's the benefit of and you being able to us being able to look at TikTok and all those little videos that come up automatically, algorithmically. And there's a saying that's been beaten to death, right? That, hey, if you don't pay for the product, then you are the product, right? Because, hey, well, how do they make money via advertising, analyzing the data, mining the data? I've been with friends num on numerous occasions where they say, look, we were just verbally talking about this thing that, hey, I uh, not, have never looked up and I'm not interested in. All of a sudden, to your point, they see various ads coming up about it. So Facebook, for example, will have uh, a ton, has has a ton of different settings that are buried and hidden and kind of obscure that you could go in and potentially change some of those sharing and analysis and your your access related settings. But you know, do most people do that? No, right? Because it's just easy to log into Facebook and look at what's coming on the feed and seeing what your friends and family are actually doing. So part of it is a little bit of awareness, which I think that there's privacy awareness that's been increasing. Over the uh, over these last handful of years, but you know, still the the benefit of doing that is people don't mind leaving the breadcrumbs when they're eating a delicious loaf of bread along the way. Do you feel like even with the privacy settings that even like, because for instance, like I got, I hate to say it, but I got really high one time and I went through my phone and I went through the privacy settings and I changed everything to where I would not get a notification on anything. And I don't know how to really reverse it. I don't necessarily want to, because I feel like, especially if you put up like, an, like for me, I put up content or something like that, that person shares that, then they're getting an interaction with their people and someone leaves a comment. I don't necessarily need to see that. You know what I mean? Like for a lot of people can't handle that. If anything, it brings you anxiety or panic on top of it. And I wonder with your privacy settings or with these types of things, is there able to be a way like if the, let's say the, the owner of the company, Facebook, for instance, if you change all your notifications to where you see nothing, they can still make you see something that maybe you didn't want to see only because they might deem it important. It's the same reason why we all get an Amber alert on our phones. I'm just wondering how sensitive is my information because there's some things you can't take off. For instance, you can't take off your email. You can't take off certain things that you've uploaded on there or put in there to make your account. Now I start to wonder, we talked about robocalls. I'm getting robo texts. I'm getting constant texts for emails. Now my phone has adapted to it and go, hey, let me just uh, throw these in the unknown folder or the unfiltered thing so you don't see them. But they're still going through and they're happening at alarming rates where even some of those get sent into the known thing because now they're using their email and it's just a random email but it's it, it's it, your phone knows what that email is because it's not a phone number so it puts it into the known section and i go man i just start seeing like these corporations not like facebook or anything like that but smaller corporations that people just spamming people are hitting buttons on a keyboard to send them all these random texts and random things now this becomes elevatingly difficult for someone who has just learned how to text or just learned how to be on this device and they click into these things. How many times could you count on your hands, which you probably can't, is because it's happened so many times, you're someone going, my Facebook was hacked. Sorry, guys, if you got any messages, ignore them. I see it all the time. And that just comes from a link. And half the time, I don't even mean to click the link. It just pops up and I go to clear it from my notifications and it opens up the message. Next thing you know, Facebook is hacked. Yeah, you know, I think you brought up two really important points. You know, one is privacy, which is related to what we've been talking about. But you also mentioned that has kind of a touch point to you. You said the notifications. And, you know, part of that is we're so connected all the time, both myself and, you know, my kids, you know, we're always in front of our devices. And for me, I've actually gone in and turned off notifications on the vast majority of things, whether it be social media, other apps, other chat apps. And I have definitely don't have the noise or vibrate notifications on. I will have like certain badges only on certain apps. 
So for me, it's more of a, a pull thing. Like when I go in right to that particular app, then I see certain things that are actually coming up. Side note, you know, some years ago, you know, I had actually deleted my Facebook account just because, you know, there was too much noise, too much for me to keep up with. But, you know, we went, had a family event, a family reunion. And of course, everybody in the family was posting their photos on Facebook. Well, I wanted to see them, right? To, your, to the point about what's the, the delicious loaf of bread that I'm trying to get. So I created a new Facebook account to go in and see the family photos and did that and kind of forgot about it. And I realized, oh, I have this Facebook account here, which I don't use Facebook. So many years later, I went in to go delete my Facebook account and Facebook wouldn't let me delete or made it hard for me to delete it because they said, hey, we noticed that you haven't used your Facebook account in a long time. We want to verify that it's actually you. So please, either you can do that in two ways. You can go ahead and have, I forgot the exact number, but have, go fi have five of your contacts vouch for you and say that that's really you. Or you can go ahead and uh, upload a picture of your government supply ID. Oh my God, it sounds like a court trial. Get, get those <laughs> notifications or recommendations of good behavior or something. Exactly, exactly. So I didn't either. So I've got this Facebook account that I never log into somewhere out there in the, on the internet. <laughs> so when it comes to AI, now, are you aware of maybe possibly the implications of AI being involved a lot more? Like our like I I mean it boils you can boil it down to algorithms as well too. Like algorithms that recently have been trending a lot because a lot of people aren't liking the algorithms. They're not they're starting to realize they actually might be more bad than good. They start might the court cases come out about incentivizing violence. But I'm also worried about artificial intelligence because the vast amount of strides we're going with technology. I like to bring up the ethical implications of it, and with talking with so many people. Who study the ethics of AI. I'm just curious from a cybersecurity aspect, does this bring up dangers to you? Because this is something that's not able to be understood, I guess, 100% developed, unless you got a good basis of the person who created it, because you're basically making an individual copy of that one self, and that thing tends to evolve past that. I'm just wondering, how difficult does that make it for cybersecurity reasons? Like you're, it's easy to track like a human's pattern of being able to see if they're breaking into your firewall or going through this, but an AI can change on a dime or an AI can evolve on a dime, which makes it difficult. You're going to start coming up with more open holes in your firewalls or more open holes in your security data only because of this machine intelligence that's being able to manipulate past it. Well, you know, first I'll say that, you know, hey, as a fan of science fiction, you know, the a lot of, a, a common theme amongst good sci-fi shows or flicks and, you know, and uh, books and so on is that humans eventually create AI, you know, uh, you know, robots that rebel against the human race, right? Usually to catastrophic consequences. So we are far away from that. But, you know, I will say, hey, technology in and of itself is not inherently good or bad, right? It's, you know, what we as people decide to do with it. You know, there's a famous example from a while ago about uh, Target. They instituted, they rolled out some new um, analytics, AI type of capability to analyze shopping behavior and give recommendations on what else to buy. And to your point earlier about different people seeing different things that they didn't know what they were, well, it turns out that there was a woman who got pregnant and she had searched for certain things in preparation to for her, for her baby. But then all of a sudden, her uh, family members who she hadn't told that she was pregnant yet started to see recommendations that were baby related to buy for her, right? And they said, oh, well, wait a second, you know, easily put two and two together. So, you know, there are unforeseen consequences of these things. But as I mentioned, hey, technology is not necessarily inherently good or bad or, you know, right or wrong, good or evil. It's what we choose to do with it. And of course, AI and this, uh, this 
investment in machine learning, investment in AI, hey, this can also be used for defensive purposes. Because from a security perspective, when we're defending our companies, our infrastructure, it is, uh, we're looking for that needle in the haystack. We're looking for those breadcrumbs that the bad guys might have left behind. And so AI has the promise to help us get better at doing that in the future as well. Do you think it would exceed humans, though, when it comes to being able to detect a zero or one out of place in an account, for instance? Like if you notice, like for an accounting standpoint, let's bring it to that aspect of business. When you're looking through records or files, be able to see payments or money that might be budgeted, you could use AI to be able to help budget better for you, be able to compute the numbers and crunch what you can cut out and what you can keep. Now, when it comes to being able to check if you have a payment that you shouldn't be paying, like let's say like I check my bank statements or something and I see that I'm paying $20 a month for something I don't use anymore. Now I can make the decision to cut that out. But what happens if there's so many, you know, there's so many numbers on that line when you're reading it out that you don't notice that, but these machines will be able to see that and then be able to say, hey, this is is what's you know pop, notification pops up this is what's uh you're, you're spending money towards you can cut this out this is unneeded we're going to terminate this now that's a beneficial aspect to it does it go even farther than that like would it be able to detect like ooh, now all my thoughts go to sci-fi what do you think <laughs> all my thoughts go right into sci-fi yeah, so that makes a lot of sense, you know, from a financial perspective, you know, we mentioned fraud before and, you know, I found personally through the fraud detection systems at my banks and credit cards and so on have been really good. And, you know, a lot of the basics that they put in place a long time ago, things like, hey, if I all of a sudden log in from Europe when I'm here, you're usually here in the US, right, unless I give them a heads up, hey, they might give me a warning and say, hey, is this really you prompt for something else and that kind of principle of prompting for some additional information, some additional confirmation are things that we've seen on kind of the regular consumer side for a while at different banks are things that we are now integrating into other areas of security as well. This whole concept of, hey, based on the risk level, based on the trail of breadcrumbs that you see, the evidence of potential uh, attacks and also that, that threat intelligence, but also those crown jewels, the more expensive things, just like your house, right? Your house, you don't leave the windows open, you don't leave the door unlocked, you lock the door, you leave the windows locked, you might have an alarm system, you might have you know, fancy places in the museums, you might have some motion detectors and so on, multiple layers of defense, the whole castle and moat analogy. And that's the same thing that kind of AI is now helping us to think about in a more layered and automated way going forward as well. So what are your biggest fears, I would say, when it comes to just your job in general? Like just, I mean, is there anything out there that like in the next five years, the next 10 years that you feel? Because I mean, with cybersecurity, it just it's so hard with the idea that AI is not just going to fully implement itself. Like, I mean, not, not like it's going to do it on itself, but I mean, just for businesses to be like a machine could do it better. I mean, it happens in so many areas. I'm just curious if you're, what your worries or fears are, is there any fears on an aspect of you might get phased out in a sense? Well, you know, Hey, before I circle back to that, you know, there's always uh, in terms of kind of AI and automation, there's always going to be a need for a, a human element. You know, and an example of this is I've got a friend who has a, a small business and a very successful small business that she's been running for quite a long time. And they had a, a, a accountant or their head of finance that decided to leave the company. And it turns out that they discover, they went back in and looked at the books that she was doing the equivalent of skimming, you know, a small amount off of every single transaction in doing this for like a decade and made off with a lot of, uh, a lot of money. 
And so this is a, a, a long way of me saying that, hey, usually there's always going to be the need for somebody to be involved, some human element. And you asked about, hey, are, am I worried about kind of getting phased out from a security perspective? I've always said over the years, you know, building security teams and programs that ideally I want to be in a situation where I could potentially put myself out of a job. Now, hey, that doesn't mean I really necessarily lose my job. What that means is that, hey, I want to get to a point where I can automate and make things better so that I don't have to focus on the same manual mundane tasks that we were doing before, but now I can turn my attention to other things. Because really from a security perspective, you know, for a, a company, we're only doing two things. We're one, protecting the organization, but two, right, enabling the organization to meet its business objectives. And similarly, from a personal security perspective, you're really only doing two things. You want to have enough security, but you want to have enough security so that you can use the services, the websites, the web applications, do the things that you personally, right, our listeners might want to do as well. So conceptually, it's the same thing. You know, I'm not necessarily worried about ever being put out of a job. It's just, hey, we've got to keep up and adapt with the new technologies and the landscape as it evolves. How do you feel about, like, I would say whistleblowers, um, just people that give out, like, a, a company's maybe information or policies that would be redeemed secret? I mean, that's got to be a tough stance from a cybersecurity aspect, only because not, you're not, not just dealing with a network, but just security in general. I mean, you don't want the secret formula, like, like we talked about before, to get out, but... I mean, I guess it would depend on what your ethics would be like when it comes to what your morals would be like. If it's something severely bad, I'm hoping that you'd be okay with it. But if it's something that's like one person is just mad at a company, it's hard to really make that decision. You know what I mean? I mean, you want to protect your company as well, too, but you also want to make sure you're following ethical guidelines. Hey, this is exactly why we have a whistleblower laws. Certainly, right? If something is, something is being done that is illegal and something that uh, violates human safety, things like that. Hey, there's a need for people to know about that stuff. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, that, yeah, that's exactly why there's laws around the world for exactly this, this type of thing. And so, you know, I would definitely say that there's a, there's a balance there, right? In terms of kind of what is that proprietary information versus what is, what is illegal and what is, uh, what is you know, impacting the potential safety of people. And when it comes to like cloud computing, for instance, when you where, where where else could you see cloud computing take off in the next ten years besides just being on devices and common household things like not maybe not a washer or something like that but like if we have vehicles eventually and they use a cloud computing services where do you see that could like I mean the best place I would see like with autonomous vehicles or something like that would be like trains because you don't really need a conductor at the wheel I mean you can have one person if you want but I mean in a sense they would be more efficient when it comes to being on time but running on a, like a, a server now would all these things have to have their own individual servers? And then how do you keep up with that? Would it be a basic template for cloud computing? Or would it be one giant kind of monolith database thing? And because I'm always worried about cyber hacks, I know that might be like a weird kind of fear in, in a sense. But I mean, it that's like, how wars are fought now or with technology it's our defense systems it's all these things they're all implemented in there so I, i'm really interested in protecting that part of it because that is fragile and a lot of times you keep them at really one spot we might have a overall like cloud thing where one person can use a laptop in an office and then it's really connected at the main data server but that main data server is kind of the one that i worry about is the privacy on that one yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Transportation is a really good example because there's so much signal, there's so much data that's coming in from the sensors on a car from an autonomous vehicle, and all of that data needs to be crunched, analyzed. Now, every device that we have has a computer, has a chip, has a, a semiconductor on it to some degree. 
And to your point, there is so much data coming in that that's where the cloud comes into play, where that data is sent up to the cloud for further analysis, for road conditions. What are other cars in that same vicinity seeing, right? And giving, uh, feeding insight back into the car itself in terms of making some of those um, actual decisions. And yeah, that's where that's definitely where the, the the world the world is going. But there's always going to be a need for that person, right? That could potentially take the wheel there if if necessary. Would this come with better education? Like, do you think at least a, an idea or a topic of intelligence should be talked about when it comes to computers and that in schools? Like, I mean, I know we talked about in the beginning kids being digitally native to a lot of these aspects of technology and learning for themselves, but I also think there should be proper education on it as well, too. I mean, at least when it comes to what you can and really can't do. I mean, there's obviously going to be new guidelines in place the more technology excels forward, but even with businesses, they're learning all the time about their advancements with technology, about how they can use the technology to make their company run smoother, run cleaner, run easier. I mean, the big topic I could really give as an example would be renewable energies. I mean, that's taking off in a whole new market. People are bringing up ideas with the advancements in technologies we could use maybe algorithms or AIs be able to excel that forward. And it just brings into this era of like, Man, if this is what the world's going to be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, however you want to say, it's probably good to make sure that everyone understands what they're being, in, I guess, invested into. And that would come with, um, you understand that when you use the device, there is going to be something, a piece of yourself that gets sucked into it. That does come with the data, the breadcrumbs that we talked about in the beginning. And I think a lot of people are just aware that they can get a cool app. And they kind of see the prize at the end of the tunnel, but they got to understand all the like kind of the walk that goes with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, you know, in terms of kind of digital natives. So, you know, one of my kids, um, you know, she was born in an era post iPhone era. And so she's only ever known kind of with that device in your hand and that uh, in your pocket and being connected at all times. And you mentioned education. That, that's definitely a, a key element of it. You know, now with her school, I even see that, hey, there are... Uh, uh, what do they call those user agreements, right? I, as a student, agree that, hey, there are these particular things that I should watch out for. And they actually do have training at the, at the school level, even at the elementary level, to some extent, right? Trying to make kids aware of what these things are. And, you know, it is going to be, not everybody is going to necessarily be an engineer or developer or go into that particular field. But I think now with how pervasive technology is, as you've mentioned, everybody needs some level of understanding of how know, the cloud or how development or how um, technology actually works, some level under the hood so that they can better uh, adapt to the environment. Because, well, why, why is my dad not able to figure out that he just needs to tap on the PDF icon to open up the PDF, even though that's what I'm verbally telling him over the phone? It's just a different era, a different, uh, different frame of reference here. And so with this kind of tech pervasive nature of technology, right, I think, yeah, you're right. Education is a, a key component of that in terms of understanding not only how it works, but correspondingly, hey, what are the threats from a personal perspective and what are the security elements that you might need to put into play? From a, you know, from a personal perspective, you know, at the very beginning, we mentioned cyber hygiene for organizations. From a personal perspective, hey, there's some basic cyber hygiene, the equivalent of fossing and brushing every single day is really simple. It's really making sure that your software is up to date and making sure that you've got unique passwords for every single site that you visit. Don't reuse the same password across your site and uh, have it be strong, random, uh, you know, something long and uh, long enough 
that is not easy for other people to guess. You know, you mentioned a couple times, I think, uh, you know, hey, well, what about somebody breaking in? Well, hey, that is one good way to make sure that you've got a strong enough lock on your proverbial front door. What about um, businesses, if we bring it back to that and virtual reality? Like if we have businesses that are going to be doing meetings through virtual reality or doing them through Zoom, what stops them from someone leaking in or getting a recording of that Zoom or whatever meeting that they're involved in? Maybe something that doesn't want to get out like a secret private uh, uh, agreement or a, uh, even between two people, not me and you or something like that, but like an uh, owner of a business and a manager. They're talking about specific things or tough decisions. For instance, Elon Musk buying Twitter. There was the Twitter phone call leak that has got out there. It's 45 minutes of just people complaining that they didn't want Elon to own Twitter, but they didn't really have a say because they already sold the company. I mean, that's information. I don't think they thought was going to leave that meeting, but it got leaked out onto the internet. And now it's out there for the world to hear. I mean, that brings up huge privacy issues. If you talk about a company trying to have a private message, it's like, yeah, this meeting's being recorded, but if we're on a business meeting and we're trying to talk about some serious issues that are going on, I don't want to have to worry about showing up in front of Judge Judy in a week. Yeah, that, you know, that's, uh, that's funny. You know, hey, with COVID, we've heard about, you know, those instances of Zoom bombings, right, at uh, different schools and so on, random <laughs> people showing up and saying, saying weird things. We, you, you mentioned uh, Judge Judy, Judy, but we did hear about that hilarious instance where there was a remote court hearing going on, and somebody had hacked into one of the lawyer's systems, I guess, and turned on the Zoom filter that had the cat face what on. i didn't hear that yeah yeah and the the lawyer couldn't figure out how to turn off the filter you know not technology savvy to to our point for what we were talking about and he was profusely apologizing to the judge and judge i'm sorry i don't know how this happened my assistant is trying to help me get rid of the cat picture the cat face and uh you know the, the memorable quote from that was uh, judge i can assure you that i'm not a cat <laughs> and uh you know hey you asked about kind of virtual reality but uh you know we're still you know that we're still the early days of vr and you know, there's different elements that are coming together that's, that are gonna you know, get us to that point. You know, one thing, another example here is with uh, uh, blockchain, with you know, and cryptocurrency being a common example of this. You know, people are saying, hey, well, blockchain is one of the key components of the new version of the web, Web 3.0, which was Web 3, which is gonna lead to set the foundation for some of these things. But I mentioned that here because yeah, whenever there is a crown jewel, whenever there is a valuable asset, People are going to try, attackers, adversaries, fraudsters are going to try to find a way to get access to it. And we've seen the theft of cryptocurrencies from various, uh, uh, various uh, uh, institutions as well. So yeah, this is, anytime there is something that's digitally connected, it increases the chances that, there's a, that, there, that, that there could be a potential attack because now the, the exposure, right? The threat exposure has increased a little bit with that, with that internet connectivity. What do you think about cryptocurrency? Do you have a positive view on it or a negative view? Like I saw a positive for companies, for people to be able to invest into companies, but I don't know necessarily the companies got the money for the money that was being invested into it. I feel like it was just people buying into stocks, um, which I don't know if they used it. I mean, it's like letting a person be like, you want to use this for the company or do you want to use it for yourself in a sense? Um, I just wonder what your thoughts are, if it's positive or negative when it comes to cryptocurrency. Yeah, you know, earlier we mentioned kind of, uh, you know, technology itself is not necessarily inherently good or bad. And cryptocurrency is the most probably widely known use of blockchain, blockchain technology in particular. Now, from a, there's a couple ways to look at this from a kind of maybe asset or investment perspective. 
you know, I like to think about things in terms of productive assets versus quote unquote non-productive assets. So a productive asset is something like a business or a property that you can rent out, something that can generate income in and of itself, generate revenue or value in and of itself. Whereas a non-productive asset, quote unquote, is something like gold, right? Gold, it just sits there. It sits there on your, you know, in your vault or shelf or whatever, and it just sits there and it changes value. Cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, for example, is a similar thing I would categorize in the non-productive um, asset from that sense. Now, hey, that doesn't mean that, hey, sure, people have made a lot of money off of both gold and uh, cryptocurrency, right? As the, as the price and the value fluctuates, you know, I'm just pointing out that it's not necessarily tied to uh, a business, right? Or something that is revenue generating in that sense. And uh, so that's, that's one, one aspect of it. Now, in terms of kind of the usage of blockchain going forward, you know, I would, I'm still interested to see where the technology goes. You know, I don't know if we still have the, the, the killer use case. Now, certainly uh, cryptocurrency is one use case, one usage scenario. But, you know, how is this going to benefit companies, individuals in the future to accomplish various goals, various business goals? You know, we talk about smart contracts and there's some of that, but we haven't, and you know, we talk about NFTs, which are built upon blockchain in terms of digital art and authenticating digital art and so on. So I think we're still early days in terms of some of these different scenarios, some of these use cases. So yeah, definitely curious to see where it actually goes. What do you, I mean, with NFTs, for instance, that was like a trend that kind of took off and then you don't really hear a whole lot about it, at least not now. I know there's apps that are now like profiting off of it, but I feel like it, it hit the mainstream. It seemed like it was very, very skewed in the beginning, which made them more, I guess, valuable was the rarity of the art, but then everyone was creating their own NFTs. So it kind of saturated the market with it. Um, I mean, there was a fear for a lot of people that everything was going to be NFT art was going to be the form of currency. And there was like this digital currency aspect, which we're kind of in now people probably pay more now with apple pay than they did a year ago um but with nfts like is that something that's even talked about or thought about like how do you protect assets if they're just pictures like if that uploads where do you have to make sure you get every last copy of that if it's on the cloud like how do you are you able to make sure that no other companies have a copy of that asset well that's what's interesting about uh, the blockchain technology is you know with the with the internet the resources on the internet, so data, news, articles, and so on, is effectively infinite, right? Like you, you, your point, you've got a, an image of a you know, sporting event, let's say, and anybody can make a copy of that image. What's interesting about blockchain is it's a way to introduce scarcity to some uh, other uh, digital resources that are inherently, by definition, um, infinite, right? In terms of being able to make multiple copies. And because of what blockchain allows you to do is to say, hey, it's this particular resource that, that this particular image or this particular asset that has that is the legitimate one. That, right, that's why we see the usage of it in NFTs in the art worlds to try to authenticate that and create some of that digital scarcity. And so, whenever you've got a luxury good, right, you know, and I would say like, hey, who who really needs an image of a a monkey, right? And, you know, I would say that you know, and pay thousands of dollars for that. that that's why I would categorize that as a luxury good in the sense that we don't need it. And we've seen, especially after COVID. You know, um, collectibles, you know, whether it be sports cards, comic books, uh, fine art, watches, whatever, right? We've seen an explosion in those values. Now, how NFTs are going to play into that, you know, it's still, still early days. But we do know from a security perspective, from a cybersecurity perspective, hey, if you've got a bunch of NFTs, if you've got your digital wallet on your computer, and we've heard stories of people losing the passwords to their digital wallets and losing potentially millions of dollars of Bitcoin. But if you've got some a very valuable digital wallet there, well, hey, if people know that, well, they might want to hack into your computer to try to get that or hack into the equivalent of the 
your bank, your mybank.com or your digital exchange that is holding all of your cryptocurrencies for you, for example. So, you know, the attack vectors become a little bit different, but for us as individuals, for the listeners here, it's really, hey, where do you have something that's valuable? If so, well, hey, think about, you. are you fine with just having it in your house behind a locked door? Do you want it in a safe? Do you want it in your safe deposit box? That's the exact type of thing that companies are thinking about as well in terms of protecting those crown jewels that we mentioned. Would that leave into like more, I guess, digitized safes? Like if you have one vault, like the bank holding all your money or something like that, there's ones and zeros on a card and a number thing. You don't really have cash. It's just a bunch of ones and zeros that can move in places to make you have more or less money. Now, if we have a vault, would there be more digitized vaults? Like if people wanted to store more of their money in different accounts or something like that, much like a personalized bank account, instead of going to an actual bank and having a safety deposit box, you could just deposit information like keys and bits and pieces where you have to have all every single key to be able to unlock the full piece of the puzzle. That, that's exactly right. That's actually exactly how a uh, cryptocurrency could work. Instead of having a safe deposit box in a bank, you can have your own equivalent of a quote unquote safe deposit box on your computer. However, just like at the bank, you need a key to open that safe deposit box. So for you, the key would be your passcode, your long passcode. Now, if you forget that long passcode, the problem then is you can never get into that safe deposit box on your computer. Oh Whereas God. if it was held at a bank, right? You can always get in because the bank has a way to get in. Like if you pass away, right? Your heirs, somebody needs to be able to get into that. So there's pros and cons. There's trade-offs here, right? And this is exactly why, because people have forgotten, lost their passcode, lost their key to the safe deposit box on their own personal machines. That's how they've lost those millions of dollars of Bitcoin inadvertently. And he searched it through a dump to be able to find it. That poor guy that you hear about that story. Yeah, I didn't hear about that one. Oh my God, there's a dude searching a dump right now. He's been doing it for like, uh, I forgot how long he's been. It's been a couple of years. He's been searching through the same dump and they keep dumping more stuff on the dump every single time. But he lost a hard drive filled with 8.6 something billion dollars worth of Bitcoin or something like that now. And um, oh, it, it, that's a horror story, man, because he's looking for it. He tossed out the wrong hard drive. And I go, that can happen with so many things. Like accidentally you delete a file and it's hard to recover it back. Even half the time, like what scares me is the fact of how reliant is this stuff where eventually it's going to be to a point where you're not going to need internet for a lot of it. Like, I mean, internet is an essential factor why all these things run. I just think someone out there is finding a better way to make sure that your internet, like, um, did you hear about the Google car scandal a long time ago? Is in think of 2008, that Google car was driving around and taking pictures of streets and being able to put it up on a map. Well, they didn't know that they were sucking little bits of data out of people's Wi-Fi networks and actually stealing private information. Accidentally, they paid a $25,000 fine, but I go, yeah, but how many people are going through people's networks to be able to steal their private data where I go, you're going to have not just only individualized networks like we do now. Um, I mean, that's as far as it really goes, at least in a sense, but having more privatized security on an aspect of each individual device is going to have its own vault and it's going to have its own lock in a sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me about that one uh, story. I, I didn't remember when you first started talking about it, but I remember once you got to that point about the Wi-Fi networks, yeah, that's exactly right in terms of, uh, you know, that, that inadvertent privacy. You know, Netflix had a thing where years ago, they, uh, you know, they wanted to improve their movie recommendation algorithm. So they anonymized after thousands of movie um, comments and, and rankings and so on and published it on the web. 
and it was anonymized, so they didn't know. But then some researchers, if I remember correctly, they were researchers at Stanford, I think, but it might have been someplace else, is that they, they correlated that data from Netflix that was anonymous, cross-referenced it with data that was publicly available from the Internet Movie Database, IMDB, and they were able to identify, de-anonymize that corresponding data and reveal people's voting preferences and personal preferences and other personal information based on that. So yeah, yeah, that's uh, in terms of kind of how the data can be tied together. It's very interesting. At any time, do you think that any of these corporations are all working together? Like when I see Disney, I'm like, Disney owns so much. I'm like, they got to own like everything. But when I see like Hulu, Amazon and all these streaming services, and next thing you know, they load out movies like at the, like Disney, they'll load out a Disney movie or a Marvel movie. And then that movie will lead into another one that'll come out two weeks later. And it's all on purpose. It works for that moment. And then people looking back on it or something like that, they're like, oh yeah, that was something cool that they did. Do you ever worry about maybe like these slow, like low key monopolies? It's kind of hard to think about that but it has to be a thought in your head when it comes to just being able to protect not i mean just from a security aspect i mean you got to appreciate that as well too i mean there's a lot of things you probably see that the general public doesn't even notice the full aspect of where that goes you know there's a saying that hey don't go don't go into a barber shop and ask the barber if you need ah. a haircut right and so you know hey as we know incentives matter and uh so, you know, part of the, what's interesting about these companies that you mentioned is, well, hey, what's their incentive? How's their business model actually work, right? And how's it all tied together? You know, we mentioned earlier, hey, if you're that, that, that maybe now cliche saying, right, if you're, not, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product in terms of the data that they're gathering about you. And there's, there's definitely an element of truth to that. But then to go the next level, you've got to think about, well, what's the, how's that company, how's that business actually work? Which then also leads us to help figure out, well, what are the corresponding crown jewels what needs to be protected. And then for us as consumers, it's having that little bit of information to say, hey, is this a company that I want to, you know, give my money to or whose services I actually want to use? Yeah, but if they see that's the thing though, is that it's become such a reliant now. Like how many people in the past year have decided to switch over to a streaming service and watch cable? You know, there's a lot of people that chose to just get rid of cable and have like one streaming service because it's cheaper. Like yeah, I cut the cord a couple of years ago. That's what I'm saying. It's like you, a lot of times it's like, yeah, you're given a choice, but are you really? It's like it's such a big part of your life now. Like, it, 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 do you think a lot of this happens to do with just like really good business advertising aspects of being able to capture people's, I guess, attention or being able to market to people? Like I know people say like, oh, we are the product in a sense. That's true in some cases, but a lot of aspects, whoever is doing the marketing studies or advertising studies have really got it down because they capture all the things like um i heard from a philosophy guy he was talking about how facebook they did a study about facebook's like buttons and all that type of stuff they noticed that if you added that angry face that you were mad at this that more that post got way more attention because people just want to jump into the drama aspect that these things have and i go that's such a weird study to be a scientist in a research lab while everyone's looking through a telescope you're like i'm gonna do this about facebook like to me that just it it, it makes me wonder like what psychologically am i thinking of or attracted to that i'm not paying attention to all because of good advertising yeah, that's a very interesting example. And, you know, in, in that case, for example, Facebook's incentive is to not publish the truth. Facebook's incentive is to is just to increase engagement, right? Interaction on the platform. That's that's their primary incentive. 
Do you think that there's, there's going to be bigger liabilities in the future? Not when it comes to just like the people, but companies, like, are they going to be more liable for the things that they do when it comes to things like that? Like, do you think there's, I feel like now everyone's taking a second turn at looking at all these algorithms and all these devices or all these kind of network platforms, I would say that seem to be swaying opinions in a sense. And I kind of look at it like, is there going to be a bigger recourse or a bigger kind of punishment for corporations that go by these guidelines. Cause I mean, I'm not saying it's poisoning people, but in a sense, it's like a lot of people aren't really realizing what's going on. They're being kind of one-sided or drawn in a certain direction. Yeah, no, well, we have heard the analogy that, uh, you know, Hey, some of these uh, so social media services are kind of like the modern day tobacco. And uh, you know, we, uh, with a, there is a, there's a regulation called GDPR right? General Data Protection Regulation that came out of Europe a few years ago or so. And it's basically saying, you know, kind of exactly what you said. It's like, hey, what privacy practices are in place? What are companies doing? Are they disclosing what the data is used for, saying what they're doing with the data and so on? And that's had wide-reaching effects to your point about, hey, is there going to be more scrutiny? Now, certainly when companies get big, there's more and more scrutiny in general, but there's also, yeah, more and more privacy scrutiny as well. And the U.S., California in particular, you know, adopted the CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act, that other states are adopting kind of similar things and moving in some of those directions. So we do see a renewed focus on privacy, uh, definitely, that's having an impact on these various services that we use every day. What do you think about the internet, for instance, do you think that there should be overall regulation when it comes to just speech? Or do you think it should be? I'm not trying to I'm not pulling it into the political thing. I'm just talking about like, it used to me at least in the beginning it used to be like a wasteland. But I think people are remembering it wrong, kind of like a source of public information, like a library. And I'm like, yeah, but at no point the librarian kind of took the book out of your hand and said you couldn't click into that. And that's why people like DuckDuckGo. But I mean, if you go to Google and you go to switch your browser, DuckDuckGo is listed as a browser you can choose. So it's like, that's weird if that's the competition. And that's why I brought up the thing about companies working together in some aspects. But I look at it like with the internet, I mean, we don't know where it's going to go in the next year. We don't know what's going to happen in a month from now. So I wonder from like a, just a, a standpoint from your, I guess, being involved in technology, what your view would be on the internet, what ways people can try and moderate it in a sense to where they can keep themselves at least a little bit more safe. I'm not saying they have to cut the internet cord hundred percent. I think it could be used in a beneficial way, but there's a lot of stuff out there that makes people vulnerable to cyber attacks and so many other things. You know, I, I try to look at it from a perspective of kind of what are the trade-offs? What are the pros and cons? What are the different elements that could arise out of this? And, you know, like you said, when the internet first got started, it was, it, it, it was, and is still largely very open. And that led to a lot of the innovation that we see today, all of these different services and all of these different uh, companies uh, providing uh, valuable things that people use on a daily basis. Now, I mentioned in the EU, they've got that GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Now, there's some pros to that in terms of focus on privacy and giving users their rights over their data and so on. But then what's the side effect, right? The side effect of that is that it could potentially result in a situation where especially in Europe to where this largely applies and the big companies, that it could potentially stifle some of that, uh, that innovation, right? So, because the uh, government in terms of regulation doesn't necessarily know how the market is going to develop, right? So this is kind of setting the parameters of that. So there, I, I see it as definitely kind of pros and cons or trade-offs. There's definitely trade-offs involved. Has there already been any locked doors, I would say, when it comes to internet regulation? Like anything that like, 
any advancements, I would say in tech doesn't have to just be with the internet, but any advancements in tech where they seem to have shut the door, not really picked it back up or maybe locked it so where they can't open it back up. Yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't think so much here in the US or in Europe, but we definitely do see that in China, right, with the, with the Great Firewall, and they've got basically their own internet within China in terms of strictly uh, uh, controlling what websites get published, what websites people have access to, and, and so on. So yeah, we have seen that on a mass scale in, in China, from what I understand. What about TikTok, dude? Come on, China owns TikTok. Yeah, that's true. ByteDance owns TikTok. And, uh, you know, that, that is one example. Well, so, so uh, you know, hey, if we take Facebook, we can talk about Facebook a little bit. You know, this is kind of getting outside of security. But, you know, Facebook with the, with the Facebook feed, with the news feed and, and stuff like that, they've got, they had a certain view around social media. And really, TikTok, from what I can tell, and my kids use TikTok all the time, for better or for worse, is it wasn't based on so much your social graph. It was more based on your interest. Is that, hey, if you watch this video, we will automatically show you the next one, right, in terms of what's the most popular. Earlier, we mentioned that Facebook's goal is seemingly to get the most engagement possible. Well, hey, TikTok, ByteDance just outdid them in terms of kind of this um, addictive you know, uh, amount of engagement in terms of TikTok itself. Now, what, are, what is all that data being used and analyzed and mined for? Hey, we, we don't know. That's, you know, that's all happening over on servers, servers over there. I'm not really super worried about the data part to it. I'm more worried on the aspect of what is it psychologically doing to people. When you're yeah. in the middle of a store and a person just holds their phone up and says, it just screams, everyone will be like, oh, I'm going to be on a TikTok. It's like, no, that person's just playing a prank <laughs> on you. It's funny because, you know, I think back to, to, you know, hey, technology evolves and we see those old photographs of people sitting at the bus stop or on the train and everybody's got their newspaper unfolded in front of them and everybody's got their head buried in the newspaper. And there's that famous uh, picture of people in the movie theater, first 3D movie, and everybody's got the 3D glasses on looking at the screen, right? And now you take a picture on the modern sub train, you know, everybody will be looking at their phone, at their device, and maybe it's more engrossing, maybe it's more captivating, harder to pull away from that interactivity and, you know, these, uh, these little tricks, psychological tricks that are done, but there's, you know, that's also human nature, right? You know, since the beginning of time, people have, you know, wanted, right, wanted these distractions and wanted these, uh, this information in terms of attention. And yeah, you mentioned it earlier, but attention is definitely probably the most valuable time and attention is the most valuable resource that we have. Couldn't agree more to that one. Oh, that just scares me, man. You don't want to end up like the movie Wally, where everybody's like letting beds float for him. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, 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 I mean, like I said, that luxury becomes a requirement in some aspects of things. I'm just, I, I don't think it's ever going to get to that point, but I definitely think you're seeing a lot of people starting to realize like the the effects of social media or the effects of the internet in general. And I think it's going to prove to lead to more classes on education about it as well. So there's a lot of people I'm seeing that are having kids now, like maybe my age or something. And they're very, very concerned about like, I don't want my kid having too much screen time. Now, I don't think you need to limit all their screen time. I just think you should instill them with the right education, be able to decipher out and make the proper choices for themselves as well, too. Mm -hmm. yeah well frank it's been a pleasure chatting with you man is there a place where people can find you any of your links yeah hey awesome yeah it's uh, you can find me online at frankkim.net is my website you can find me on linkedin frank kim and on twitter at fy kim all right man i'll link it all in the descriptions but the pleasure chatting and thanks for listening to this episode out of the blank